Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 14. The Great Divorce, Chapter 9 Continued. The Grumbler and the Artist. Okay, everybody, so this is going to be a slightly different introduction because we're just carrying straight on from last week. We're in Chapter 9 of The Great Divorce, and Lewis has just met George MacDonald. He's spoken about the choice that people make towards heaven or hell. And he now tells Lewis a story about a man called Sir Archibald. He says that this Sir Archibald was interested in what he calls survival. I've heard some different interpretations of this. Matt, what did you think he meant when he talked about this? Oh, my, my first thought and still this thought. At this point, I was rushing through my skimming a little bit more. But my main thought was just survival of life. Like, just surviving, making it through. Like, very technical, very direct, very literal. So, like, survivor man, like preppers. Yeah. Well, I have read some commentaries that make that argument. I, I don't think they're actually right. Because MacDonald says that he started off philosophical and ended up doing psychical research. And psychical research is a kind of parapsychology. It's a study of the psychic or the paranormal. And particularly given the time that Lewis was writing, spiritualism had received a kind of revival. So I would suggest that the survival that he's interested in is the long-term survival, not simply in this world, but proof of an afterlife, proof that there is existence beyond this mortal coil. In preparing for this episode, I spent some time trying to find out who this Sir Archibald was, because Lewis gives us lots of very specific details, both about his journey and the fact that when the country was at war, that he had traveled up and down the country telling people not to fight and this money should instead be used to fund his research. <laughs> and I actually reached out to William O'Flaherty. He's the guy who runs EssentialCSLewis.com. And he pointed me to a book that I'm now going to buy by Dr. David Clark. It's called C.S. Lewis Goes to Heaven. And this is what he says. At first, the ghost seemed to be based upon a tragic Irish parson that Lewis had known when he returned to his studies at Oxford after his military service. No longer a believer, his single obsession was human survival. And yet he was not interested in seeing God, nor improving his soul to make it fit for immortality, or even meeting dead friends. And then he quotes from Surprised by Joy. All he wanted was the assurance that something he could call himself would, on almost any terms, last longer than his bodily life. The last book that we read in book club was Surprised by Joy, and I remember reading this and wondering if this was Sir Archibald. But Dr. Clark says that that might be some of the inspiration, but he doesn't think that's who Sir Archibald really is. He says, A closer look at the biographical details Lewis provides of Sir Archibald reveals so many specific historical facts that he must be describing someone else. Sir Archibald's obsession with the afterlife and his activities during the historical era in which Lewis places him points only to one individual, Sir Arthur, not Sir Archibald, namely Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So this is the guy who created the Sherlock Holmes character. And Dr. Clark suggests that Lewis changed his name, uh, perhaps because he didn't want to be inundated with thousands of letters by fans outraged that he sent the creator of one of their favorite detectives to hell. Sure, it has nothing to do with uh, Sir Archibald, the lieutenant general in World War II and World War I of the British Army? Uh, yes, I'm certain, because I did that same Google search, and <laughs> that is the first Archibald that you get, but no, it doesn't match. <laughs> I did it literally as you were talking. <laughs> but I think this makes sense of everything else that MacDonald says. 
Because he says that when Sir Archibald comes to the land that they're currently in, he said there was no power in the universe that would prevent him from staying and going on to the mountains. But he said that this country was of no use to him at all. Everyone had survived already, so nobody took the least interest in the question. There was nothing left to prove. Sir Archibald had nothing, therefore, to do. And he said all he had to do was admit that he'd been mistaken, that he'd mistaken the means for the end, had a good laugh at himself, and then he could have begun again like a little child and entered into joy. He says, but he wouldn't do that. He didn't care about joy. And in the end, he just went away. But where I think this gets really interesting is that Lewis expresses amazement at this Sir Archibald story, that somebody would be so focused on this, so focused on survival, and then when they survive and get to heaven, they actually turn away from it. And MacDonald gives him a glance and tells him that it's nearer to such as you than you think. And he gives examples of people who mistake the means for the end. People who are so consumed with proving the existence of God that they care nothing for God. People who are focused on spreading Christianity but ignore Christ. People who collect books but then never read them. Or organize charities but lose all love for the poor. The whole time I'm reading that, I'm thinking, we're like talking about theology or C.S. Lewis on a podcast, yet never spending time with Christ or encountering Mm -hmm. him, like evangelizing. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about communion with God. We're talking about thy will be done. But it's important to us that you and I, in our entire daily journey, are are focusing singularly on our our making sure we're entering into communion with God, or else this is going to be worthless. Exactly. I I couldn't imagine anything that would disappoint Lewis more than to have C.S. Lewis fans who neglect Christ in favor of Lewis. There's a small part of you wish, and I can already shoot holes in my what I'm about to say, but that God looks and says, okay, you didn't do the greatest job encountering me, but you brought lots of people to me, so I'll that, that offsets it. It misses the point because it ontologically has nothing to do with that. It's about you truly wanting and desiring to say, not how many people you bring. But there's, of course, that earthly side of you that's like, got to get some dispensation for that. I couldn't help but imagine that if Lewis had to write that sort of ghost, I think it would be somebody who would be arriving in this land and they would spend all of their time in these foothills because they would be wanting to see the people that they helped bring there. And they would forever dwell in those foothills and never go up to the mountain. And here would be the issue. You and I would be talking about this character, that the problem is pride. Mm -hmm. They thought they did it. Rather than recognizing the intellect that allowed them to convey this and communicate this and to learn these concepts and synthesize it well is a gift from God. The fact that the right people were put in their life that allowed them to embrace God and Christianity was a gift from God. The fact that they're even alive, breathing, talking is a gift from God. The fact they have the time to do it. And so it's all that they somehow look at it as they did this, rather than recognizing every part of it was a gift from God and him using them as an instrument to paint his painting in nothing more. And ultimately failing to take their own advice. It's like a doctor who has high cholesterol and tells his patients with high cholesterol that they need to cut out all the bad food and they're not doing it himself. That's a decent analogy too. Not quite the level of other two, but that's worthy. Eh, it's, it's okay. I only need a couple per episode. Now, this whole conversation makes Lewis feel awkward because MacDonald has just told him that perhaps he's not quite so far away from Sir Archibald as you might think. So he does what every good person does and then changes the subject. <laughs> and he asks why the solid people don't go down into hell to rescue the ghosts. 
If you remember, this is one of the questions that the hard-bitten ghost asked. And more on this will be explained later, but MacDonald says that the bright spirits have come further to meet the ghost than he can possibly understand. And he says that it would be no use to come further, even if it were possible. So it implies that it's not possible. And he says the same would do no good if they made themselves mad to help madmen. That's, a, that's just a good life lesson too on people who are in a, if any of our listeners are in a place of ministry or evangelizing in some certain way, you have to make time for yourself and your relationship with God. Because it's not, not trying to com- convey this to reaching mad people per se, but if you're spending all of your time helping other people who are at different stages in a journey and never allowing you to have that silence, that solitude for God to pour into you, you're going to have nothing to pour into anyone else. Mm-hmm. It's not going to help you to reach drug addicts by becoming a drug addict yourself. Exactly. Now this comforts Lewis somewhat, but he's still worried about the ghosts that never actually make it on the bus. And this is where MacDonald says the quote of the week. They're some of the most comforting words in the entire book. He says, everyone who wishes to enter the bus does. Never fear. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. So comforting, but it is also harsh, because it says that there is a hell, and there are people who go there. Lewis's conversation with MacDonald is interrupted by the thin voice of a ghost talking at enormous speed, which was addressing one of the bright spirits who, in the entire conversation, doesn't get a word in edgewise. This ghost complains about everything, including the trip to heaven. So, a little acting time. Oh my dear, I've had such a terrible time. I don't know how I ever got here at all. I was coming with Eleanor Stone and we'd arranged the whole thing and we were to meet at the corner of Sink Street. I'd made it perfectly plain because I knew what she was like. And if I told her once, I told her a hundred times I would not meet her outside that dreadful Marjorie Banks woman's house. Not after the way she treated me. That was one of the most dreadful things that happened to me. I've been dying to tell you because I felt sure that you would tell me I acted rightly. No, wait a moment, dear, till I've told you. I tried living with them when I first came and... This just goes on and on and on. <laughs> I thought you were going to finish it. I was about to say that's close to slow clap worthy. <laughs> it's almost as if there's a part of that in you. Oh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> I'm kidding. But this, this, this woman, this ghost, she's basically the antithesis of joy. She doesn't take joy in anything. She takes this pleasure in everything. In grumbling. Yes. This whole thing goes on for a while until, as Lewis describes it, The shrill, monotonous whine died away as the speaker, still accompanied by the bright patience at her side, moved out of hearing. Now, we spoke about the origin of Sir Archibald. I think this is probably based to some degree on Mrs. Moore, who was Lewis's adopted mother. If you recall, uh, one of his close friends who died in World War I, they promised each other that they would look after each other's family in the case that one of them died. And so... Mrs. Moore and her daughter moved into the kilns, and she was apparently quite a difficult person to live with, particularly towards the end. Mm. There's so much I don't know about Lewis's life. You need to come with me to the kilns, man. I will be. We, we, when are you going to England again? Uh, end of June. I might join you. Excellent, because I will be going back. When you say end of June, like, like, like the last day or like the last week? Uh, the last week. I think we can't return on July 5th. 
Oh, perfect. What I'd try to do is maybe I'll only be for part of it. The 4th of July is huge for my family. So probably July 1, I'll be up. But if I come even, even if I get there a few days before you and overlap the last, like your first three or four days, mm-hmm. but then I leave like the 30th or the 1st, um, it's, it's a $330 round trip flight from, from New York. So, Wow. I might try and see if I can get a meeting with Walter Hooper. Let's do it. <laughs> with two of us, of course we can. This whole incident really troubles Lewis, and he says to MacDonald that this woman shouldn't really be in danger of damnation. He explains that she's not wicked, she's just a silly, garrulous old woman who's got into a habit of grumbling, and he says that one feels that a little bit of kindness and rest and change could put her right. MacDonald says that the chief issue here turns on whether she is a grumbler or only a grumble. And his point is that if there's any trace of a, of a real woman still left there, all inside that grumbling, that that woman can be brought to life again. And that's what Lewis says in Mere Christianity. You, know, you get to see who somebody really ultimately is when all of this other stuff falls away. And he has this lovely image. He says, If there's one wee spark under all those ashes, we'll blow it till the whole pile is red and clear. But if there's nothing but ashes, we'll not go on blowing them in our own eyes forever. They must be swept up. It's a lovely image. If there's any spark left, we can work with that. But he says that if there isn't, we're not just going to keep on blowing on these ashes and getting them stuck in our eyes. <laughs> and oh, that, that part did challenge me quite a bit. When he described, when you're, when you're just grumbling and you're not a grumbler before you deteriorate into that, it starts with you doing it. Maybe there's some dark mood. Maybe there's some things that happen in your life and you do it. But then there's, a, there's the main part of you that notices it, recognizes it, and says to yourself, All right, that's not good. I, I, that wasn't really me. I'm sorry for that. I need to repent. These things happened. No big, you know, not no big deal, but let's move forward. Grace, mercy, and move on. It's when that part dies. It's when you no longer have this main part of you, this outside observer. Your conscience, maybe is a better way of describing it that even notices you doing it anymore, that says, Matt, that wasn't good to do. I know why you did. Don't do it again. When that dies, that's when you have a problem. And that's when you become a slave to your passions. Yes. I mean, at at the time of recording, we're just rounding the final corner of Lent. And this is one of the reasons that we fast, so that we are in control of our passions, not the other way around. I'm in charge of my body, not my body in charge of me. That just because I have an instinct that kicks up into my brain, that there's another part of me that says, is that good or do we need to kill that? And when that monitoring of my passions dies or is lulled to sleep, then I'm just going to be driven by my passions. And that's when I turn from a grumbler into a grumble, because that's now the only thing that's left. And connecting to mere Christianity, that's why Lewis said he, he couldn't understand how Christians could have such mercy, but yet such vigilance for the smallest of sins. It's not because the sins themselves are necessarily going to punish you to hell or damn you to them, but it's because they could be the beginning of a slippery slope that leads you to become a person that chooses hell. That's why you stay vigilant. Or in the great divorce scheme, you actually cease to be a person. Because in this, we're seeing the dehumanizing nature of sin. When you're a grumbler, you're still a person. When you're a grumble your personhood has almost been entirely worn away. MacDonald reminds Lewis that he's here to watch and listen. 
and he invites Lewis to lean on his arm and go for a little walk. And Lewis says that leaning on the arm of someone older than himself took him back to childhood. And I couldn't help but think of the passage in scripture where Jesus says you must become like a little child. I thought the same thing. And I actually wrote a blog post years ago where I explained the image that comes to my mind now when I hear that. And it was from a time I was visiting Vegas for the weekend (laughs) and sitting by the pool and there was this little kid who was just diving into the arms of her dad who was in, in the pool. He would catch her, put her back on the side and she would do it again and again and again. She was willing to abandon herself to her father because she trusted him. She knew he was good. Here we see Lewis doing something similar. He's trusting MacDonald. He's doing what the self-conscious ghost couldn't do, which was to lean on the bright spirit sent to help her. And as he's leaning on MacDonald's arm, he comments that it really helps a lot, that it hurts far less. And he also feels his other senses sharpening. He thought for a second, oh, I must be coming stronger. And we all know this in our own journey. We, we really submit ourselves to Christ, to God's graces. We start being formed. And arrogant, a little bit of arrogance creeps in. I'm doing quite well. <laughs> and he looks down at his feet and then recognizes, ha, I'm not getting any stronger. This ghost is just helping me. And that is, that is a really great life lesson in the spiritual journey of just noticing the second you think it's because of your own doing or, hey, look, I'm finally doing this. I'm getting stronger. You're, you're at danger of pride coming in and you're at danger of falling. And Satan will use that so fast. It's not even funny. And sometimes God will as well, just to give you a little bit more humility. Ah, St. Teresa of Avila says that in her Interior Castle book. Sometimes you need that. Uh, as they go on their little walk, they see many more ghosts. But Lewis writes that the most pitiable one they see is a ghost who had the opposite problem of the self-conscious ghost. She tried using her feminine charms to seduce the solid people. And he doesn't give us any more background to this, but I can't help but think that on Earth, this girl clearly thought that her chief, perhaps her only value, was in her beauty and in her ability to seduce men. But, of course, here in heaven, that just looks ridiculous. As they're walking along, Lewis and MacDonald talk about what happened in the previous chapter with the unicorns. And MacDonald explains what we concluded in the last episode. He says, You'll have divined that he meant to frighten her. Not that fear itself could make her less a ghost, but if it took her mind a moment off herself, there might, in that moment, be a chance. I have seen them save so. Drum roll. The part that I got wrong. So what, what was the bit that you think we didn't quite cover last time? I have to take full blame for not covering it because you just accepted what I said. You didn't actually. So this is on me. I accept that. But I <laughs> I took the approach of the fear, almost the fear pushing her to it just from the fear itself. Here, there's one extra step. The fear leads to her thinking of herself less. And therefore, that thinking of herself less is the quality. Mm-hmm. I didn't get that last connection of her thinking of herself less. Okay. Which is better because it's, it's much harder to argue that God would, is it, is it really good for him to pull you to you because you're afraid of the alternative? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, I, I, I see how you understood it. Yeah. No, it was, it was to get her to, to not be consumed with herself just for a moment. Yeah, that I missed. They carry on their walk and Jack tells us about some of the other ghosts that they saw. 
And he said that many of them came to heaven simply to tell the people there about hell. And that's the theme of this next section, the idea that hell always wants to pollute the heavenly. Lewis describes it as tinging heaven with infernal images and colours. And this idea is going to be expounded by MacDonald, I think particularly in the next chapter. Uh, but he says that the, the academics, the scholars, come to heaven to get, and they want to give academic lessons about hell with charts and statistics. And there was also reference to a magic lantern, which is an archaic term for a slide projector. He's not, he's not talking about it's a lantern that gives you wishes or something. Didn't even catch that. And he says... I love that it's a slide projector, though. Yep, that's a slide projector. And he says that some people come to heaven just to tell anecdotes about notorious sinners. Or as we call that, gossip. <laughs> and he says that some simply want to accuse those in heaven of being sheltered. Some want to foment revolution in heaven. They want it to become hell. Some want to tame heaven by killing the animals, cutting down the trees, installing a railway. And my favorite line was, damn the river. And I wondered, was Lewis sneaking a little joke here? Because you can't damn anything in heaven. <laughs> that would be one of the more clever puns of all time. I mean, I wouldn't put it past Lewis. Well, if I ever get to meet him, I'm going to ask him if that was an intentional joke. I think it probably was. Lewis also describes what he calls materialist ghosts, who come to heaven simply to tell everyone that this is a grand hallucination and there's no life after death. <laughs> uh, and he also says that there are some ghosts who just try and scare folks. They, they're embracing their ghostly nature and they just want to be Spooky ghosts. They just want to be bogeys. And he also says that there are some monstrous looking ghosts who simply come to spit in heaven's face. And this chapter is a real mixture of some really heavenly and hellish things. Because that seems terrible. That some people could be so consumed with hatred that they come to heaven simply to call it names and then turn back. But MacDonald comments that he's seen that kind of ghost converted he says those who hate goodness are sometimes nearer to it than those who know nothing about it and think they have it already. And that should be a reminder that we can't ever write anyone off. And we also can't be too satisfied with our own progress. Even if they have a sliver of their true self in there, we'll pull it out. That's our job as Christians, to see that in everyone. They could be 99% bad. Your job is to see that 1% to find it and to call it out of the person. And that is so hard to do. Yeah. And then we come to the final ghost of the chapter. We spend the remaining time with the artistic ghost. He was a famous artist on earth and the solid person he meets was a friend and also a fellow artist. And the ghost's big preoccupation is he wants to paint the heavenly landscape. And the spirit tells him that he first needs to look at it. He really needs to be able to see the landscape before he could get to that point. And he explains that in his early days as an artist, he painted because he caught glimpses of heaven in the earthly landscape. And he wanted to communicate it, wanted to convey it to others. And here we come back to this idea of means and end. On earth, he saw glimpses of heaven. But in this land, he has the real thing itself. 
And he says that the bright spirits see it better than he does. And he says, but that will change in time. And when you can see things more clearly, then you'll want to be able to tell us what you see. And to this end, he invites him to lean on his arm. He says, come and see, he is endless. Come and feed. That idea caught me by surprise, that there will still be things that you see differently. But then when I thought about it more, it reminded me of when Lewis talked about when you throw salt on something, its flavor comes out more. And so you, won't, you will become even more distinct when you're in heaven. So that, that means, even though you're in ultimate reality, even though truth is known, that doesn't mean there's not still a role for your gifts to offer. It's just going to be different than what we can imagine today. It's like two people can read, say, a chapter of The Great Divorce, know it really well, but from their slightly different vantage points, they see things cast in a slightly different light. And by coming together, they get to share with one another what it is that they see. And just imagine if you're both in heaven, you're going to be, you're going to be so affirming to the other person. <laughs> That's so amazing that you saw that. Oh, thank you for sharing that with me. I saw it this way. <laughs> I just pictured it's like perfect interaction. <laughs> yes, we will have the best discussions about this book if we both make it to heaven. <laughs> Don't mess up, Matt. Don't mess up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, don't give up on me david (laughs) (laughs) however the ghost just can't let this go and he keeps wanting to know when he's going to be able to start painting and the spirit explains to him if you're only interested in this country for the sake of painting it you'll never learn to see the country he's telling him to stop mistaking the means for the ends and this mistaking the means for the end is a mistake that many of the other ghosts make You remember the Episcopal ghost? He had this great pursuit of inquiry, but he forgot that it was a means to an end, that you arrive at truth. So Archibald, he really cared about survival. He cared about something of himself lasting beyond his death, but he didn't care about what that was. Again, he saw survival as the end and not the means to something greater. And this ghost himself, he's forgotten why he started painting. He's more concerned with paint itself rather than the light and the truth which he used to communicate through it. That's what all of the things in this world are meant to do. They're meant to point forward. They're signposts pointing us to a greater reality. The solid person describes as you go on this journey and you get up into the mountains and you you align your will ultimately more with God's will and you get closer in that and you get more solid and you get, you're able to accept ultimate reality more. He describes this fountain and I'm going to read a quote here because he describes it so beautifully. He said, at this fountain, very cold and clear between two green hills, when you have drunk of it, you forget forever all proprietorship in your own works. You enjoy them just as if they were someone else's without pride and without modesty. Wow. David (laughs) does not like when I say I love this part, but I love that part. (laughs) Listeners, he does that because he goes, it's not what we love. (laughs) And I would say that all the time with C.S. Lewis. I love every part of C.S. Lewis. But that fountain, that, that, I want to say we've talked about this before, if I'm correct, but it's that concept that it's okay to be proud of something you do. The one really good litmus test of good pride versus bad pride 
is if I accomplish something really wonderful and I'm proud and I'm celebrating it, if David Bates were to accomplish the exact same thing instead of me, would I be equally as celebratory? If the answer is yes, that's great then. Because there's nothing wrong in celebrating and good stuff happening. That's a wonderful thing. The question is whether it's important that you're doing it versus someone else. And that's why I love that it says no proprietorship in your own works. You enjoy them as if they were someone else's. Oh. Which means that, at least in theory, you and I can listen to our own podcast and really enjoy it. <laughs> oh, I already do. That was, a, that was a good episode. That was a good episode. <laughs> I do that all the time. <laughs> I do that with others too now. I listen to others' podcasts and I don't think, oh man, they're crushing us. I go, oh, that was really good. <laughs> and the little bit that you cut out of your quotation when he says, a little like, I think it's meant to be pronounced leaf. I love that you picked up on what I cut out. <laughs> I spent a long time with this chapter this past week. Um, I looked it up. It's a river in the Greek underworld, and those who drank on it experienced complete forgetfulness. But this fountain in the mountains in The Great Divorce, it's not complete forgetfulness. It's complete self-forgetfulness. And this is a great time to point out, and I do this probably every five or ten episodes, but one of the big things that brought me to Christianity was it described a way of living that was, was way better than what the world was offering. And I think that's actually a very attractive point to the truth and the validity of Christianity. As Chesterton says, if something is true, it's probably going to be the key that opens the door to happiness. This is another example of that. When you read that, ask yourself as a person, do you find that desirable? Do you wish you could live in a way that you don't care if other people are accomplishing stuff, that you can celebrate, affirm, participate in the joy of someone else's accomplishments. Most of us can't do that. Yeah, It describes an incredibly beautiful way of living. That's why we say truth and beauty of Christianity. That alone, that fountain right there, bam. Now, you might really like that idea, but the ghost doesn't seem very psyched about it. <laughs> <laughs> but he does comfort himself with the thought that, that he'll get to meet interesting people. And by interesting people, he means other famous artists such as Claude and Cezanne. And he's amazed that his friend doesn't know whether or not they're here. And the spirit explains that fame doesn't work the same in this country. He says that the glory flows through everyone. He says, all are famous. And he says, they're all known, remembered, and recognized by the only mind that can give a perfect judgment. They are all known that is huge Mm -hmm. again it's it's comforting and terrifying that there is one perfect mind who knows me thoroughly and that's a great comfort and it's also a little scary (laughs) that concept has been popping up in my life more and more through psychology books through theology books if you want to know what is a big part of true happiness joy be fully known by God and by some people very close to you on this earth. Like we all really deep down want to be known. And the problem is most of us put on this false self that prevents us from being known because shame, pride, ego. I mean, that is so much of the spiritual journey, letting that break down so you can be known and understood. I mean, that right there sums up half of psychology, that's that sentence, to be known and understood. And once again, the artist isn't very pleased with this. (laughs) 
So he instead comforts himself with the fact that he's still thought of as a great artist on Earth. But unfortunately, the spirit tells him that they've both been completely forgotten. And this is just too much for the ghost, who immediately heads back to the grey town, intent on self-promotion. He's heard about this fountain where he can completely forget about himself, but he doesn't want to do that. He wants to be remembered for himself. It's, it's, that, it's that Latin phrase again, incurvatus in se. He is a soul turned in on himself. What a way to end. Yeah. Well, now we get to finish the haikus from last week. You were going through them. You were on a roll. I think you did, I don't know, was it five or six of them? And, I'm, and there was a few more, but we had to stop. Save some for this week. Yeah. So I wrote some for the complaining ghost. Whining, complaining. From grumbler to a grumble, nothing left to save. Oh, that one's very wise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that captures a lot too. All men have a choice. Search for joy and it is yours. Those who seek will find. And I also did one for the artistic ghost. Don't make a mistake. Choose heaven, not the signposts. The end, not the means. I like that because that's the first time you've ever done like an appeal. It's almost as if you were talking to the ghost. (laughs) Don't make a mistake. Choose heaven, not a signpost. The ends, not the means. Mm. So that, we finally get to the end of chapter 9. I don't think we'll have to do this very often. It's just that this chapter was kind of long and there was an awful lot of stuff that we needed to talk about. And of course we know David and I like talking, so there was no way we were about to cut out a lot of quality material we could hear ourselves talk about. Mm -mm. Never. But as we sign off here, we want to encourage everyone as usual. We know that as you hear this, it becomes a common thing, but we can't stress it enough. Please rate us. Please leave a review on iTunes. Please interact with us on pintswithjack.com, pintswithjack Instagram, at pintswithjack Twitter. We enjoy your feedback. We're actually finding an increased frequency of people communicating with us through Twitter. I mean, uh, Instagram, or particularly David is. That's awesome. We want this to be a community. So please keep doing that. Keep your eyes out for more YouTube videos. David and I are going to be trialing a new exciting way of interacting through YouTube. And so keep your eyes out for that. But uh, we look forward to chatting with you next week as we will go further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers.